Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So glad you're here this morning. Good to see you. And uh, we are going to continue week two of our series, Unto Us our Christmas series this year at First Century. So this series, we're looking at an ancient prophecy from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, who close to 700 years before Christ was born, uh, predicted the birth of Christ. And not only did he predict the birth of Christ, but he gave some specific titles to this person who would come, to the Messiah. That's basically all Isaiah knows about this person. He doesn't know when this person's going to come. He doesn't know his name's going to be Jesus. He doesn't know anything. He just, what the Holy Spirit tells him are certain things or character traits about this person. And so um, in Isaiah chapter 9, he lists really what kind of we take this time of year at Christmas as descriptions of Jesus who would be born, again, 700 years after this prophecy was given. And so we're going to read, last week we read a bit more of it. This week we're going to read kind of the end of it and the, the next few weeks in this series. We'll look at this and we'll t- pick one character trait from this list that Isaiah has and see how Jesus was that thing or was that description. So we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, reading verses 6 and 7 for our main text today. So here's what it says, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So today's description that we'll look at from Isaiah 9, verse 6, is Jesus is a wonderful counselor. That's what we're going to look at today. Now, what does that mean in terms of Jesus? Well, we're going to make it pretty easy because what I'm going to, how I'm going to approach this today is look at character traits of a counselor. Now, there's two different ways you could do that word, and they both will fit, but I'm going to focus on one specific meaning. So one meaning you could look at as far as a counselor is like an attorney, someone who represents you. Now, the character traits of that that we'll look at today will fit that description as well, but the one I want to focus on is more of like a counselor, uh, like you would go to to kind of tell your problems to or get advice from, that sort of thing. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. So what we're going to do to make it very simple again is look at three characteristics of a counselor and see how Jesus fulfills all of them, how his life, ministry, words, his even spirit today still fulfills this prophecy to this very day from Isaiah chapter 9. So we're looking at Jesus being a wonderful counselor. So the first and maybe the most important description uh, of a counselor is they need to be someone who listens, right? If I'm paying you (laughs) to hear me talk, you need to listen to what I'm saying. If you're going to have any way of knowing what my issues really are, you have to listen 
and not just on a surface level. You have, a counselor is going to be trained to kind of read between the lines, aren't they? They're going to be trained to hear certain words, phrases that you say in a certain way and be like, okay, they think that's their problem, but really this is their problem. That's what a counselor does, but they have to listen to do that. So Jesus does this very well. Uh, he had 12 men, young men, disciples who were with him all the time, and he listened to them. He was teaching them. He was training them. He knows I'm going to be gone in a couple years, and I'm leaving these guys in charge. And at times, I'm sure Jesus felt fear <laughs> when he had that moment and he had that thought like, oh, man, these are the guys I'm going to hand this thing over to. Ugh. So and if they're, they're probably somewhat like me, the disciples are going to ask really dumb questions all the time. They're going to say really stupid things all the time. There's even a few times where Jesus kind of gets exasperated with them. They don't understand what he's saying. They ask the same questions over and over and over. They have the same concerns over and over and over. They're like, hey, could you tell us the meaning of that parable again, Jesus? He's like, I, you know, I drew pictures. What do I have to do to, with you people, you know? However, he still listened to them. As the teacher, he has to hear what they're saying to know how to teach them. He has to hear what they're, what they're learning, what they're getting, what they're missing in order to fill in those gaps to train them for the work that he knows is ahead of them. So in that specific way, with those specific people, he was someone who listened as a wonderful counselor. I want to broaden that, that meaning just a little bit and, and include this idea, though, as well. With listening in the way that we're talking, I think in listening in general, it's time and intention. That's what listening is. I'm intentionally giving you my time to hear what you're saying, and I'm going to focus on what you're saying. So Jesus does this. He gives time and attention. And what he does a lot of times is he gives it to people that he shouldn't. Society says you should, you, they should leave you alone. You should leave them alone. You shouldn't be around them. You're a rabbi. You're a holy man. You, pro, you proclaim to be this guy, and yet you're around these people, listening to them, spending time with them, but he longed to do that. Let me give you two examples uh, from his life. First, in Luke chapter 8, uh, Jesus is walking through town, through the town square, on his way to perform one miracle. So a, a man, a religious man, has said, my daughter is at home. She is deathly ill. Will you come and heal her? And so Jesus says, yeah, I'll come. And so Jesus and his disciples are walking through town. Now, Jesus, as you can imagine, is quite a celebrity, and he's walking through here, and as you would imagine today, if a celebrity's walking through downtown, there's going to be a crowd gathering around him. Once they hear he's coming to town, once they, you know, not Santa Claus is coming to town, Jesus is coming to town. So once they hear that, I mean, it says, he writes that there's a crowd pressing in around him, trying to get their selfies in. Hey, Jesus is right, you know, right here, and that sort of thing. You know, they're trying to, you know, maybe I can just, you know, reach out and touch him or whatever. Which is funny because that's actually what happens uh, in Luke 8 while Jesus is walking through town. Suddenly he stops and he says, who touched me? Right? And the disciples are like, Jesus, that's a really dumb question. I mean, no offense, Jesus, teacher, but that's a dumb question. Because there's a crowd. They're all pressing in. They're all trying to just, oh, I touched Jesus. I'm never going to wash this hand again. You know, they're all, everybody's doing that. Aren't, but why would you ask who touched me? He said, no, 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 somebody, he said, I felt something different when this one person touched me. And so he waits, and what happens is this woman approaches him and, and tells her 
his, or tells him her story. And she says, Jesus, I've suffered from a bleeding disorder for 12 years. So what that means is a couple things. First, she's spent all that she has to try to go to specialists and doctors, and they've been no help. She has, there's no cure to this disorder. Secondly, because of the nature of this disorder, she has been considered unclean for 12 years. She's not been able to be in normal society. She's an out, much like the lepers we talked about a couple weeks ago on Thanksgiving. She's on her own, and she can't do anything about it. She, she has no other recourse, but she also heard Jesus is going to walk through town. He's walking through town. Maybe a neighbor told her. Maybe, you know, a relative, somebody, they obviously didn't call her, but, you know, they texted her maybe. Maybe that's what they did. Uh, they, they got on their tablet and chiseled it, you know, and sent it to her. I don't know what they did. Somehow she knew Jesus is coming through town. This is my only chance, my last resort. And so she tells him, a different uh, author says, if I just reach out and touch the fringe of his garment, I believe I'll be healed. That's what she did, and that's what Jesus felt. So again, he's got people pressing in around him. He's trying to get through this crowd to get to where he's going to do another miracle. Yet, as a wonderful counselor, he stops when he notices someone was really in need here. They weren't just trying to get, you know, a moment with me. They weren't just trying to say, I was there when Jesus walked through town or I touched him or what. No, someone who really needed me reached out, and I sensed that. That's part of him being a wonderful counselor. He's there to meet the needs, even of a woman, again, who shouldn't have been in the crowd. She should not be there. She's not allowed. And yet she pushed through and reached out and touched the fringe of his garment. How's he going to feel that? He felt it because there was a need, because he is a wonderful counselor. Jesus was okay with being inconvenienced. Again, he's on his way to do something else. He stops to make time for this woman. He's a wonderful counselor. Another example is in John chapter 4, famous story of the Samaritan woman at the well, where Jesus and his disciples are traveling through Samaria. They stop because they're tired. The disciples go into town to, get, to grab lunch and bring it back, and he, Jesus rests by this well in the middle of the day. And so while he's there, this woman from Samaria, from that town, comes, and she's going to get water, and Jesus starts a conversation with her. Now, what happens in this conversation is interesting because they talk about some hot button topics. Like the first thing they start out with is religion. Remember your Thanksgiving meal a couple weeks ago? What are the things you're supposed to avoid? One of them is religion, right? Typically, you avoid politics and religion. They talk about it. And in their day, religion was political. Politics were religious. And so they have this conversation about who worships here and who worships there and who's right and who's wrong. And Jesus, being the wonderful counselor, listens to this woman. Now, they disagree on their political views. They disagree on their worldview. Notice Jesus doesn't shout her down, right? Notice Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, 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 woman, listen to me here, right? And he could have culturally, right? In society, he is several steps above this woman in the culture in that day and time. He has every right to interrupt her, to talk over her, to demean her, to say, why are you talking, like, get away from me, we're done here. But no, he initiates the conversation first, and then as they're talking, he lets her say what she thinks and what she believes, so then he can respond with the truth to her. You see, too often in our culture, right, now Christmas time, is little, sometimes we get holly jolly for, like, a few weeks. That's why people love Christmas so much, because we'll put aside our differences and, like, ah, you know, we'll do that for a few weeks, right? 
Then what's January 1st? I hate you because you don't believe like me. And my neighbor, they're this and that. And that person on the news, this and that. And that politician is like, okay, so for right now, things are like a little calmer maybe than normal for a while, hopefully. Um, but Jesus doesn't participate. He's like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not interested in that. He's a wonderful counselor. He listens to this woman. He hears where she's coming from. And like a great counselor does, he perceives what her real issue is. He gets to the heart of her problem. And he announces himself to be the Messiah, the one that Isaiah prophesied about. And she believes him because he knows things about her life and her relationships that he should not know. He has this supernatural insight in some way that the Holy Spirit gives him into her life. Why? Because he chose to listen as a wonderful counselor. So the thing with today in our lives is it's the same. Now, while Christmas is sometimes holly jolly, it's also very busy, busy, isn't it? We're running around, getting gifts here, doing things there, uh, office party here, church party there. I got to prepare for whatever, however many Christmases you're hosting or going to. Maybe you got to travel. You got all the things to do. Maybe you're going to volunteer a little this holiday season, whatever, right? So it's busy. Can I just encourage you that the wonderful counselor who is Jesus is never too busy for you? He's never in a hurry. Again, he's on his way to do one thing. He stops to do another thing on the way. He's got time for whatever is in your life. Whatever time you spend with him is time well spent. So then the challenge then is, will we slow down this time of year and spend time with the wonderful counselor to, to let him listen? He's there. He's ready. He's like, I'm waiting. And sometimes we're just too busy zigzagging, doing this and that, not giving him the time that he wants to have with us. So the challenge then is to spend time with this wonderful counselor this holiday season, to make it memorable in a meaningful way, to give that time and attention to him so he can give that time and attention to us. We have to make time for this wonderful counselor. And here's the cool thing about this. As he listens, he's not going to judge you, whatever you tell him, right? Oh, I can't believe they did that. He already knows anyway, right? So it's like no big news to him. He's not going to zone out or get distracted. He's not going to get bored with your story. Haven't you said this several times? He's not going to do that. He's going to intently listen, and he's going to hear what you have to say. So I, here's what I would say. On your schedule, jot down a counseling session with the wonderful counselor. Put it on there. Like literally write it on the calendar. Put it in your phone. Set aside time to spend time with Jesus this Christmas. It'll be worth it. And the second description of a counselor, which Jesus is here from Isaiah chapter 9, is that a counselor also empathizes. Now this looks different in different ways, but a counselor will do their best to feel what you feel, to sense what you're sensing, to feel your pain, if you will. Jesus, that, that's kind of his whole thing. Okay, so Matthew 9, 35 and 36, Matthew writes this. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus has taken upon himself all of our worries and cares, all the people's worries and cares. He feels that at a deep level. He senses that on a level that no one else ever has, ever will, or ever really can. So if Jesus is going to the gym, he's not going to skip shoulders because he knows he's got a load to put on that to carry basically all of our worries and cares all of the time. One example that I think is interesting about the empathy of Jesus that 
I think is fascinating, so I want to look at it here for just a minute, is in John 11, where Jesus, he gets word that his, one of his best friends, Lazarus, is ill. And his sisters send word, Mary and Martha, that Lazarus, your friend, is, is sick. He's going to die. You need to get here and heal him now. But Jesus waits a couple days at least, and he tells his disciples, he says, hey, his sickness will not end in death. Waits a couple days, takes a couple days to travel. So four days after he gets word about his friend being sick, he shows up, and Lazarus is already dead. Well, that's a problem, because didn't you just say four days ago, this will not end in death? Well, that's what he said, and that's what he meant. But here's what happens. So when it's one of the most famous scriptures that almost anybody in the world knows. is John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the Bible. It's simply two words. What are they? Jesus wept. Now, this shows some type of empathy, I believe. The question is, why is he weeping? I want to point this out just for a minute because I think it's pretty interesting. The, I think there's three possibilities here, and they may all be a part of this pie. Why he weeps at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. So one possibility is personal sadness, personal grief. I mean, his friend is actually dead. So the humanness of Jesus is there. He's 100% human, 100% divine. We believe that. I don't have time to get into that today, but maybe, maybe next week we'll get into that. So he's, he's there, and he feels this loss in some way. He senses death there in some way. So there's that personal part of it. There's also what I think empathetic sadness. He walks into this scene, and everybody is crying. Everybody is weeping. Everybody is hopeless. Everyone is like, what happened? How could this happen? That's what the sisters, Martha and Mary, they both approach Jesus independently, and they, ask, they say the same thing to him. They say, if you would have been here, Lazarus would not have died. So he's sensing sadness and grief and doubt, disbelief, mistrust, you know, like, is Jesus going to keep his word? He said, you know, I knew he was going to come, and he said he wouldn't die, and man, he didn't come, and Lazarus did die, and so there, maybe the foundation of their faith in him is shaking, and so he's there. All of that, again, is weighing on him in this moment. That empathetic sort of sadness causes him to weep. There's also a third option that I think is actually in the text the most, and that is empathetic anger. You ever been so angry that you cried before? I've been, that's usually... One of the few times I ever cried in my life was one of those, some of those types of things. So angry about something that you just tears well up and you're like, Ugh. we see that in the text. So before, so at the tomb of Lazarus, it says Jesus went there angry. He's upset. Now, he's upset again because the people aren't believing in him. They're shaken by this. And he's like, I can kind of do anything. Like, what's the deal here? And so he's kind of, that sort of emotion there is welling up in him too. He's, he's sensing, man, there's a lot of things going on here. Um, and so it's causing this anger. Then even at the tomb, he, he's still angry. He's still like, this is not cool, guys, you know. Uh, and so, but then what does he do? He prays, first of all, he prays a prayer to God out loud. And he even says, Father, I'm praying this out loud so that they that are here will hear me and believe. So he's kind of, you know, really spelling it out for them. Just in case there's any confusion as to what's about to happen, let me just, this is for you to believe in me, you know, because he's sensing that foundation shaking. And so then, then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And then this mummy-like person wrapped in grave clothes is bunny hopping out. You know, I know it's Christmas, but he's bunny hopping out of the tomb, and he has been resurrected from the dead. 
But that those tears, there, again, it could be personal sadness. It could be empathetic sadness. It's also a little bit of that anger there. All those emotions show this humanity of this person who is Jesus that Isaiah talks about. That's part of him being this wonderful counselor. The, the cool thing about this story, though, is even in those emotions, even, even in that anger, he still performs the miracle. So be encouraged, even in moments where you doubt, and maybe Jesus is like, are you kidding me? Like, how many miracles do I have to do for you for you to get it that I'm going to, it's going to be okay, you know? And, but he still performed the miracle. That's the empathy of Jesus, I believe, coming through and, and will come through for us as well. But it also means this. Jesus is empathetic to us in our condition in a very specific way. And so I want to read a couple scriptures before we move on to the last one. And that's, first one is Hebrews 4.15. It says this, this high priest, that's Jesus, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. I mean, that's the most perfect example of empathy you could ever have. Jesus understands our weakness. He understands our temptation because he was fully human. That's part of the beauty of Christmas and the power of Christmas and the meaning of Christmas. He had to come in human form to empathize with us on the deepest level possible. So when we, when we pray or seek, you know, God or whatever, it's like Jesus knows how you feel. He literally knows. It's not just, he doesn't just sympathize. He can empathize because Jesus has been there, done that. And he, he's probably suffered more than most on this planet have suffered. So he knows on a deep level um, all these types of things. He knows what temptation is like yet without sin. He's our example, but he's also, he, he has empathy, but he's also our example to overcome temptation and resist sin. So because of that, here's what we can do. 1 Peter 5, 7, because of the empathy of Jesus, Peter says we can cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So here's what that also means. It's not just that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. It's not just that he knows what it's like to deal with sin in that uh, fringe sort of way, but he knows what every human emotion is like. He knows. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. You ever been there before? You said something and someone took it the way you didn't intend it. That's Jesus's life. <laughs> he means one thing in a very certain specific way, and most of the people don't get it. So he knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to not be accepted or to not fit into certain crowds. He knows what it's like to face criticism. Man, if Jesus had Facebook and Twitter, wow, can you imagine what that feed would look like on the regular? I mean, you, you'd have to bleep out almost every comment under everything he would post, right? He knows what it's like to be criticized. He knows what it's like to face pressure and expectations. We already kind of talked about it. He, he feels such empathy on a deep level. He knows what it's like to bear people's burdens. He knows what it's like to see people hurting and be like, oh, man, you know, that's heavy. That's hard. That's rough. He knows what it's like. The pressure expectations. Even his mom pressured him, right? His first public miracle at a wedding, his mom's like saying, hey, it's miracle time, Jesus. They need wine. There's water. Do your thing. And he's like, it's not time. Now, like, and then five minutes later, it was his time. I just, I just didn't think he didn't want to obey Mary right there or something. I don't know. But anyway, he knows what it's like to face pressure. You know what it's like to face pressure. Jesus knows what it's like to face pressure. He knows what it's like to have expectations. Everybody expecting you to do all the stuff all the time. He feels that. He empathizes. He knows what it's like to be lied about. He knows, what it, he knows what it feels like to be betrayed. He knows what pain is. 
in every sense of the word. Jesus empathizes with us on a deeper level than we can ever imagine. And that is what makes him a wonderful counselor. You can't tell Jesus, you don't know what it's like. He knows what it's like. You don't know how I feel. He knows how you feel on a deep level, deeper than you can ever imagine. And he's there for us in the midst of all of that. It's part of him being a wonderful counselor. Here's the last one that we'll cover for a minute here. The third characteristic of a counselor is that a counselor has a plan. So they listen, they empathize, they, they figure out what's going on, and then they give you kind of your homework. Or here's the thing you can build on, here's the thing you can improve on, here's what you should stop doing or stop saying, that sort of thing. So you tell your story, you bear your soul, you list your problems, and then they have a plan. They have next steps. But I want to focus on this word wonderful here on this last one specifically. Now, the other two things are wonderful about him, but this one I think specifically is wonderful. Let's look at the word wonderful for just a second. So wonderful means it's full of wonder. Just flip it, and that's where you get, what does that mean? What is wonder? It's full of wonder. It's beyond description. It's beyond imagination. It's beyond what I can comprehend. That's what wonderful means. So one way to think about that is uh, the seven wonders of the world. Okay, we have, I have some pictures of some of those. Now, there's two lists of those seven wonders of the world. There's seven wonders of the ancient world. So like the pyramids of Giza are there. Um, the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, which would have still been around in Paul's day. Um, different things like that. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon. So these are centuries, centuries, millennia old. So these are wonders because you look at the size of them, the scope of them, and the detail of them, and you're like, how did primitive societies construct these things? How did they make this happen with probably primitive tools, primitive ways of thinking? How did they do that? That's what makes these things wonders. They are wonderful. There's a second set of wonders of the world that are more, more modern, I would say, but even some of them are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. So things like the Great Wall of China, uh, the Taj Mahal is one, the Colosseum in Rome, things like that. Again, we look at the, we marvel at the size of these, the detail, the way that they stand the test of time for hundreds or thousands of years. How did they do it? It fills us with wonder. They are wonders of the world. They are wonderful. So what makes Jesus a wonderful counselor? Now, we know he's a good counselor. What makes him wonderful? Here's what that is. Let's look at this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's what makes Jesus a wonderful counselor. It's not just that Jesus has a plan. It's that Jesus is the plan. That's what's wonderful about Jesus being our counselor. Because you see, the, the number one problem of humanity is sin. Sin must be punished by a holy God. The price must be paid to atone, to pay back the penalty of our sin. And so Jesus doesn't just find a punishment for our sin. He becomes the punishment for our sin. When it comes to the atonement for our sin, he doesn't just figure out, he doesn't get the calculator and say, well, here's how much you owe God. He says, you owe God more than you could ever repay, but guess what? I'm going to take your place and be the price that is paid to atone for sin. He is our atonement. This is what makes Jesus a wonderful counselor. Not just that he has a plan, but that he is himself the plan. This should fill us this Christmas with wonder. It defies logic, understanding, and explanation. And here's the other part of that. Normally, a counselor's plan are next steps for you to do, right? Here's your homework. 
Here's the next thing I want you to do before you come back to me next time. Here's the stuff that you need to get right, the stuff that you need to fix, the stuff that you need to figure out, the stuff that you need to make right, the stuff that you need to stop doing and start doing this other thing. That's normally what a counselor's plan involves. But the wonderful counselor's plan is simply believe in his plan, which is his son, which is Jesus himself, right? That's the plan. Not do these things, not take two and call me in the morning. Believe, Jesus says, believe in the one that God has sent. That's, that's it. That's the plan. That's the wonderful counselor's plan. It's simply belief, faith in him. Not a bunch of work, not a bunch of lists, but faith in him. So let me read one more scripture as we close, and that's 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. Another part of the wonderful counselor's plan is this. Peter writes, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors, and it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Here's the key, verse 20. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. So this plan of the wonderful counselor is not an emergency plan. It is not the original plan failed. What's plan B or C? That's not, this is a wonderful plan from the wonderful counselor because it was the plan from all along. And Jesus was willing to be part of that plan, to be the, really the main part of that plan. So that's the beauty this time of year to think of Jesus in the terms in which Isaiah prophesies. He's a wonderful counselor. He listens. He spends time with us. He longs to do that. He can, and it's not just that he listens, but that he knows how you feel about anything and everything. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be uh, talked about. He knows what it's all of those things. He can empathize. And then his plan to solve the real issue deep down is himself. It is himself. What a wonderful counselor we have.